Welcome to the Horseman's Academy podcast presented by Lundahl Performance. We believe in making advanced horsemanship accessible, and our mission is to present a raw, authentic look at horse training. We're problem solving, we're answering difficult questions, and we're breaking down common sense exercises for riders of all levels. On this podcast, we document the lessons we've learned in our own horsemanship journey while offering insights that might help you achieve your horsemanship goals. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Horseman's Academy. Each episode will be taking on a horsemanship question from our listeners, delving into a foundation training topic, and then covering an advanced or a discipline-specific topic or exercise. In this episode, we'll provide answers for a horse that's jittery and has a bad attitude about lead changes. We'll go through Day 1 of our Colt Starting Program and talk about the dry work fundamentals that we want to instill in a young cow horse. That's next on the Horseman's Academy podcast. I'm Jake Lundahl, here with Amy Kegel of Lundahl Performance. What do we got for our Q&A segment today, Amy? Hey guys. Yeah, so for our Q&A segment today, we're looking at a question that was submitted to us through Facebook by Royce and a couple other people, kind of along the same lines. And they were all asking about the same topic. And kind of the gist of their question was that they're having some trouble with lead changes. Uh, they say, my horse is changing leads consistently and has been for some time, but recently he started doing it with an ugly attitude, pinning his ears, ringing his tail, being tense and pissy about the lead change in general. Any tools or tips that might help them with this? One of the things that makes flying lead changes so challenging once you've already taught them is when the horse develops what we call habits of anticipation. That could be uh, speeding up in a way that you didn't ask for right before the change or as you're cueing for it. Um, the horse getting tense or stiff in the bridle. In some cases, kind of half-ass running off a little bit with you um, as you go into that buildup for the lead change. Or just the horse acting pissy or irritated uh, and changing leads. You know, They change but with a poor attitude. That can be very hard to correct. These things can become ingrained habits. Every time you change leads, the horse is tensing up, anticipating it, and at the same time showing their displeasure with being asked to change leads. So clearly, this specific question, to clarify, is not about a horse that's green or doesn't know how to change leads or is confused. This horse knows how to change leads. The problem isn't coming from confusion or inexperience. It might be difficult to hear this answer, but the problem, all that tension, the negativity, the pissy attitude, it's a symptom of a cause. It's a symptom of a horse that isn't accepting being trained on. He's not mentally soft. He's getting preoccupied with being angry about the fact that you're putting pressure on him instead of just focusing on his job and doing the maneuver. So we need to start breaking down this lead change maneuver itself and start finding ways to simulate different parts of it put this horse in a bind and start training on him and get him relaxed and accepting of being trained on. Get him relaxed and accepting of that level of pressure. So would it be safe to say that kind of in the beginning stages of teaching your flying lead changes, there's still a mental component of it, but 
their body doesn't quite know how to change leads with you on it. It's more of a physical thing. Here, they physically know how to change leads. They physically know the cues, but they're mentally not happy with it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and sometimes it's a bit of stiffness or resistance that the person never really got out of the horse. So we need to go back and retouch that foundation. Other times, the horses become what we call anticipatory, meaning every time you go into that sequence of cues to ask for the lead change, you know, just little bad habits of stiffness or rushing through it, the horse kind of beating you to it, or um, just being a little irritated about that lead change, those bad habits start coming into play. We see this a lot, especially with lazy horses, where when the rider asks for the change, oftentimes, you know, because it's a lazy, stiff, dull horse, they're burying their leg in that thing, you know, burying their spur in that horse. And over time, that horse starts not only anticipating that, but starts to get kind of offended about it. This question has come up repeatedly. Um, and so I wanted to fully address it here and go into some things that we would do if we had a horse like this in training. And we do have horses like this in training often. What we would start with for the next several rides, probably the first week at least, is we'd forget about working on lead changes themselves and just focus on getting this horse counter bending at the canter as well as counter cantering. Both of those exercises need to be a lot more smooth and relaxed. Nine times out of ten, horses that have these jitteriness, stiffness, kind of a bad attitude or sourness about lead changes, it's because they're not fundamentally broken enough through the body. And they're not soft enough, really, mentally or physically. So we'll go back and review these exercises for the next several rides. Do at least two loping sessions every single ride where, for example, I might lope the horse around on a large circle and just practice bridling that horse up. Practice shaping that horse both ways on the circle at the lope. First, shape into the inside of the circle. We've got both vertical flexion on his face as well as lateral, keeping that horse's nose tipped around at least to the point of his inside shoulder. The deeper in the bridle that we take him, the better in this case, but it also has to be within reason, as well as I'm using my inside leg to keep that horse's inside shoulder stood up, using both legs as I need to drive that horse forward up to the bridle, drive him up into his face, and keep his inside hip pushed up on the circle. So now I've got him shaped to the inside on the circle, right? You want to take that horse deep enough in the bridle to make it challenging. It shouldn't be easy. This first little stage here, just seeing how soft the horse really is, how much we can push him up to his face, this is usually where problems get exposed right off the bat with these kinds of horses. They can't even get over this first hurdle without stiffness and resistance coming out. That's why I'd come back to this and double check it at the lope. You need to be testing how deep you can take that horse in the bridle, put him in enough of a bind to where it's actually challenging. It shouldn't be easy. A lot of owners are riding around just giving their horse tacit approval for a subpar amount of softness and submission to pressure. If you up your expectations a little bit, the horse's ugliness and stiffness starts to come out, right? So we need to root that stuff out. That's exactly what we're trying to do here. And we're waiting until that horse fully relaxes before we're going to release that pressure. That's the main thing you need to be focused on as a rider. And kind of a side note, and you can correct me if you feel this is different in your experience here, Jake, um, but oftentimes when I get asked this question, we are often going to talk about counterbending and countercantering. And it's almost like the person that you're talking to just gets kind of 
glazed over in the eye a little bit or like they don't fully think about it. They hear counterbending and countercantering and they just like automatically check those boxes as, yes, my horse can do that. Yes, my horse can do that. What we're kind of getting at and what we want to challenge you with with these questions is you need to be willing to relook at your horse in these exercises kind of with fresh eyes. Look at them from an outside perspective and see if there are areas, because if you're having these issues, there are going to be areas where you're going to need to raise your expectations and expect more out of your horse here. So when we say counterbending and countercantering, you know, just take a step back, don't immediately cross those boxes off. Look at them with fresh eyes for a second. And the way professionals often think about this is the counterbending and countercantering are both interchangeable things that we'll work on during our loping sessions. You just get the horse in an all-around habit of being shaped one way and then the other and softened up and bridled up and manipulated and played with, you know, like they're a piece of molding clay or Play-Doh. That's what creates a horse that is mentally soft and submits to your hands, is okay with your legs being in them, and isn't getting offended about the bind or the pressure that you're applying. And most people do not do their homework on that level. They treat it as a single uh, exercise to where, oh yeah, I can I can counterbend my horse or a little bit, and I can I can counter canter a couple of circles, you know, basically loping on the wrong lead, not really getting that horse deep in the face, checking that level of softness, really upping their expectations of how relaxed the horse is. They're just content to do it and call it quits and be done. And that's not what we're talking about here. You you need to think about your entire loping program in the sense of how am I creating mental softness with this horse throughout their entire body? And that's what your, your focus needs to be, you know, bare minimum a week at least with the typical horse that we have uh, with these problems. We'll look back at their loping program and usually there's big holes that we need to come back and fill before we can even move on to more complicated stuff. Um, you know, a lot of horses will barely tolerate that basic bind. You know, they're used to pony loping around a little bit, maybe have a little bit of shape, but we really try to bridle them up, take them deep in the face and ask them to truly soften through their entire front end, through their entire head, neck and withers and, and stay with us and not get offended about that. It's all too common that horses barely tolerate that. And that means they're not truly soft, so we need to reverse that trend. But when you can confidently bridle that horse up and shape him both ways at the lope, that's what we mean by counterbending at the lope, is you're not countercantering in the sense that you're loping on the opposite lead to the circle. You're still loping, say, a left circle on the left lead, but you've got the horse shaped around to the right. And so you're able to shape them to both the inside and the outside of the circle both ways and have the horse be comfortable about that and wants to stay with you for more than a few strides. You know, you need to be doing that for multiple circles, staying with that horse and have them relaxed and being secure in that before you move on. So that's the first big thing that we need to address. Um, and after a few sessions of that, if the horse is being soft and submissive, we're going to repeat that entire process with the counter cantering. So for example, um, you might be loping a left circle on the right lead, but we're also going to still practice shaping both ways. So left circle, right lead, shaped left, and left circle, right lead, shaped right. So we're going to do all of those combinations. Again, it's a holistic look at your loping program. 
and a way to put the horse in and out of different shapes, in and out of different binds, and root out areas of stiffness or areas that horse is reluctant to being taken a hold of. That's what we're really trying to root out here. And so once we've worked significantly, gotten that horse significantly softer with both the counter bending and the counter cantering um, at the lope, then we'll actually move into our cigar exercise for lead changes. And that's where instead of loping circles, you lope diagonally across the pin. For example, on the right lead with the horse shaped right. And as you lope across the center of the pin, you change shapes. You change your hands and legs, but you don't change leads. You just shape the horse the opposite way. You think about clearing their shoulder and setting up for the lead change without actually going through with it. You're just simulating the process of the lead change while at the same time, you're being a bit of a detective and looking for areas of stiffness and resistance that the horse offers. For example, you might lope diagonally across the pin on a straight line on the right lead with the horse shaped right. As you come across the center of the arena, you start straightening that horse's body up underneath of you. So you not only change shapes with your hands, but you start using your outside leg, in this case your left leg because you're on the right lead, you use your left leg to stand the horse's left side up, clearing the way for a theoretical lead change. Again, you won't change leads, but you're setting the horse up for it. And it's in that setting up part that a lot of this tension and jitteriness and stiffness and the horse anticipating also gets exposed. That's exactly why we do this, because you're not selling out and committing to the lead change, but you're simulating all the parts leading up to it. And if at any point the horse gets real stiff, any, any part of that system breaks down, you're in a great position to make a correction there and, and not have it blow the lead change, right? You're not making lead changes the bad thing by forcing it and forcing it and then drilling on the horse and correcting and correcting. No, you're simulating the lead up to that in an opportunistic way to where if the horse does something silly or uh, out of whack or stiff or uncontrolled or whatever, you can catch them right there and address it without breaking their confidence for the maneuver itself. And when we start our cigar exercises, that's where the two tracking comes into play. You know, is that horse going to pick up and yield the left side of his body with that when you put on that left leg? Only if you've done your preparation and gotten that horse soft. So that'd be another area, which is two tracking at both the walk trot and the canter, where when we go and try to do that with people's horses, we often find that it's severely lacking. That horse is not yielding their body off their leg. In some cases, the horse is kind of haphazardly falling away from their leg, uh, or the horse is getting stiff or is just kind of resentful about it. That's another area where a lot of resistance can be cleaned up is if you do a lot more two-tracking at the lope as well, not just the walk and jog. So in the cigar exercise, once again, as you're applying that left leg in this example, you're bringing that horse's nose around to the left and shaping him to the left, although he's still on the right lead. And in the beginning, you might not be able to take a ton of shape, uh, but you still want to challenge the horse, right? Um, the horse at least needs to be brought around from instead of being shaped the original way, they at least need to be pretty straight underneath of you and moving off of your outside leg to tracking at the lope. And then as you approach the end of the arena, you change back to your original shape. Your outside leg comes off 
inside leg goes back on and you shape the horse back the original way to the right in this example. And from there, you can just round the corner to the right, loping on the right lead as you originally were, and head back across the arena and set it up again. But you want to round that corner nice and tight, not a big wide swath, but a nice tight turn while maintaining your lope, as well as that's a great area to check your horse's softness in the face. You know, just bridle him up nicely there. Check that softness as you round the end of the arena. And that's why we call it a cigar exercise, because you're making these long diagonal lines across the arena with tight turns at each end. So you're making a giant cigar shape. Um, you know, if you, if you could see from a top-down eagle's eye view of the arena, the tracks that you're making in the dirt look like a long cigar laying diagonally across the arena. And the great thing about the cigar exercise is once you teach the basic premise like this, you can modify it infinitely. Just like the rest of your loping program, it becomes about throwing in little changes to the exercise here and there to keep the horse honest, uh, to test them a little bit, to correct or reinforce something. You know, the whole point of this cigar exercise is you establish it and then you start playing around with it, changing shapes at different points in the arena, um, instead of loping around the end the way of your lead, you can counter canter around the end of the cigar. You can do all kinds of modifications like that to keep it challenging and keep the horse honest and stop those habits of anticipation. One of the big problems we see with people is they're always doing figure eight type patterns and changing leads always in the center of the arena. And it just plays into your horse's anticipation problems. So find ways like this to incorporate lead changes throughout your loping program, change at different times, taking the horse in and out of different shapes, keep them honest. That's the challenge of a horse that knows the maneuver is now you can't do it in the same old predictable way, or you'll start to create bad habits. So typically, once you establish the cigar exercise, that's going to take about two to three weeks of consistent practice to master. But it needs to be said that if you start that exercise and your horse is really struggling with it. I mean, you can't even change shapes while trying to lope a straight line without that horse climbing out of the bridle, getting extremely stiff. If any of that is happening, it's a dead giveaway that you haven't done enough counter bending, you haven't done enough counter cantering, and you haven't done enough two tracking. All of these things need to be done at the canter. Your horse needs to be confident with it at the canter. I know a lot of people that do a lot of two tracking at the jog, and they can counterbend their horse at the jog all day. But you try to take that into a lope. You try to have them lope five to seven minutes consistently doing these exercises. And that horse starts to throw up a massive uh, red flag, right? Because most people don't put enough time in at the lope itself. They've gotten, they, they haven't gotten their horses truly mentally soft and submitting to pressure. So breaking down this lead change maneuver into those components going back to basics, focusing on that for a week or two, then starting to put things together for the cigar exercise. As you go through that process, you're going to figure out where the bad habits of stiffness or anticipation are developing. And the most important thing to remember is when you're doing these loping exercises, stay in them long enough to get some improvement and only release the pressure and reward the horse when they relax and have a positive attitude. That's the other thing as far as awareness goes when you're riding. Anything that you release to, anything that you reward the horse for, 
It needs to be not only a soft feel, it needs to be mental submission and mental relaxation from the horse. A lot of people are just going through the motions of the exercises. The horse yields their body off their leg a little bit uh, and the human releases the pressure. But that horse, when it moved, that's, you know, if, it, if they were picking up its shoulder or moving its hip over, two tracking, what have you, that horse was doing it with a pissy attitude. But instead of acknowledging that, the person just thought, well, their feet are moving the right direction, so I'm going to release. No, you need to be a lot more aware of how that horse's attitude is and how mentally relaxed and submissive they are about what's going on. So you need to be rewarding not just them going through the motions, but them being mentally settled and committed with it. You know, in the beginning, when you start really diving into this with your loping sessions, it might get a little bit ugly because now all of a sudden you're putting a lot more pressure and higher expectations on that horse than you had been previously. But that's necessary. It's a necessary learning curve that you're going to have to go through because you need to get rid of that stiffness that's in there. Another thing I want to call attention to, and the reason we like to break down lead changes this way and work on it methodically, is because a lot of people, when they first teach the lead change, they turn it into a big deal, right? Like I said before, they do a lot of figure eight type exercises or serpentine type exercises where they're predictably changing leads in the same places, going through the same sequence of cues, not really paying attention or encouraging their horse to be relaxed and controlled. They're just kind of kicking them into the lead change, right? And because they're so aggressive about getting that done and just getting the horse to change leads, they play into that tension and stress and they start to create bad habits around that maneuver. So the solution to that is to find a way to train on the horse and get them relaxed to be in that bind without creating a fight, without ramming and jamming, without thumping and jumping without turning the lead change itself into a fight. I've actually worked with horses who were so in a habit of fighting the lead change, they seem to almost deliberately poke the rider's buttons on purpose, you know, because having a fight about lead changes became almost an inevitable part of every ride. So the, it's like the horse would provoke it just to get it over with, right? So that's not what we want. We want the opposite habits. We want relaxation. So find ways to break the parts of this down, get this horse a lot softer, because chances are fundamentally this problem is more in the mental softness. The, the physical softness is a symptom and it's there, but we need to be focused more on is this horse relaxed to have us manipulating his body, taking a hold of him, shaping him, asking for these lead changes, or by giving tacit approval to his frustration and stiffness and wanting to rush things, are we playing into that bad habit? We need to get back to basics, back to our priorities there. And having a higher awareness of those mental things going on with your horse, almost having more of a detective type mindset. A detective is going to be a lot more aware of what? details, little things, nuances, and try to think that way versus having a box checking mentality of, oh, ding, 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 we went down the list, we did the exercises. Go a little deeper. How did you do the exercises? How did they feel? How um, How was your horse mentally responding to them? Was he upset? Was he relaxed and smooth? Was Did stiffness come out? There's so many more things to be aware there than just did his body go through the motions of kind of doing the exercise. Kind of like, like a job interview. I'm thinking of like 
uh, a job interview when you're like checking boxes of, you know, your past experience or whatnot. And if you've even probably halfway ever been exposed to something on one of those check boxes, you're going to check it. Why? I mean, it's going to make you look better, okay? We don't want to have that type of, you know, box checking mentality really in any aspect of our horsemanship, but it's really obvious here with these lead changes. Be a little bit more of a detective. Those of you that have been listening to us for a while, you're probably familiar with that theme. We're all about getting a horse mentally soft, and that's really the first step into advanced horsemanship in general is you're still doing a lot of the same exercises and concepts, but you're you're paying more attention to the horse, doing it with the correct attitude and mentally getting soft to the exercise and relaxing about it. The key underlying factor that we see with most horses is people are not doing that and they're not staying in any one exercise long enough to give the horse a chance to become comfortable with it. Two tracking, especially at the lope, is a great example because you're putting the horse in a major bind and that's an exercise where a lot of stiffness and frustration on the horse's part come out, right? But 99 times out of 100, the people that we teach that exercise to, once the horse moves off their leg a little bit, they start just taking that at face value, right? And you can do that in the beginning when you're just rewarding the slightest try, but you need to be progressively staying in there longer and longer and longer, being more demanding and picky about that horse relaxing first before you release the pressure, not just moving their body off of your leg. And that philosophy translates to everything else, counterbending, countercannering, anything else that we do to prepare for these lead changes, the cigar exercise, and then changing leads itself. It's all the same mentality. And a lot of times, it's little things that fly under the radar that sit there and fester and become a bad habit, like head tossing during the lead change, for example. It initially starts off as just a little bit of stiffness or tension or, you know, the horse kind of jumping into it and, and rushing it just a little bit. But you don't do anything about that. You don't correct that. You don't delve down into getting that horse more relaxed about that maneuver. And it just gets worse and worse and worse over time. And all of a sudden, you've got a habit like this on your hands where that horse is flailing around pissily as you ask for the lead change instead of just relaxing and making it easier on you and them and just doing the maneuver. Let's delve into our foundation training segment. For the next several episodes, we're going to be going through uh, snapshots from about the first two weeks of our cult starting program. And the reason we're doing that is because I don't think a lot of people fundamentally grasp on a professional level exactly how comprehensive and intensive a cult starting program needs to be. It's not just a laissez-faire, oh, you know, go throw a saddle on the colt and just see how he does. That is not the mentality that we approach this with. So I wanted to draw attention to certain stages uh, of the early colt starting process and some of the things that we do. We're going to start off very basic today, though. We're going to start with day one, the first day of this horse's career when we bring him into the round pen. What do we do? And so this is how we think about starting colts, whether they be performance horses or when we bring in older horses for retraining with our eight-week program, this is how we start on day one. So day one, we bring the horse in the round pin. We do our round pinning exercises. We desensitize. 
We let the horse have a break, then we come back for a second session that same day. We desensitize again, round pin the horse again, and then finish with desensitizing. Right. So in this first day of training with this colt, the session is going to be repeated twice in that same day. What that does is it kind of jumpstarts the progress and it helps get the horse in a working frame of mind. So it's, it's just kind of extra concentrated for that first day. We want a complete transformation in this horse and we want them to know that, you know, things are kind of getting serious around here. It's like boot camp and we're not messing around. So we're going to start with round penning and complete the first session, and then we're going to finish with desensitizing. After that, you know, first session on the first day, from then on, we're always going to start and end the groundwork session with desensitizing. So we didn't do that when we first brought the colt in because he's got no incentive to stand still. He's probably fresh. He's probably not been worked with lately or at all. Um... And so it's just really not messing, not worth messing with. We also don't know much about the horse at this point. We don't really know how sensitive or reactive he is or how dull and lazy he is. We kind of have nothing to go on. Um, so we also don't know if it's a safe idea to do right from the beginning when we first bring that horse in. After moving the horse around the round pen, creating some turns, we're going to have a really good idea of what this horse's uh, natural tendencies are and how close we want to get to him in this desensitizing. Exactly, especially with the problem horses that we bring in. Sometimes we have no idea how this horse is going to react to our presence, us being around them or us putting pressure on them, until we start actually putting pressure on them and moving them around the round pin. And we obviously start in the round pin because it's safer, right? Um, we can start putting pressure on that horse, gaining his respect, getting control of that horse's feet, um, without being connected to him. That makes our job easier and safer. And if the horse tries anything disrespectful or dangerous, we're not going to be in harm's way. One of the first mistakes, I'll draw attention to this as well, one of the big mistakes that people fall into with the round pinning itself is spending a ridiculous amount of time on this exercise or trying to refine it too much, trying to get everything going perfectly, literally spending hours in the round pin each session to try to get the horse to like join up and follow him around like we're making a, a horse whispering documentary, right? But that's the wrong way to go about it. The round pinning exercise should not take any more than 20 minutes per session max, in my opinion. If your horse is not super sweaty and blowing and has a massive incentive to want to stand still and relax after that 20 minutes of work in the round pin, you're not working them hard enough. You're not loping them enough. You're not putting enough pressure on the horse. We see that a lot where these horses are not even breaking a sweat when these people are round pinning them. No, we need to get in there and get serious and get this colt's feet hustling. Establish a starting point, uh, you know, get the concept of move your feet, turn to the inside, um, and build from there. Get in, get out. That's the mentality we have in the early stages with this round pinning. Now, the purpose behind the desensitizing that we do, and we start with just the lead rope as well as the training stick and string these first several days. But the idea is that we need to be able to throw that lead rope over and around all the parts of the horse's body, withers and back, hindquarters, neck, back legs, front legs, in that order and have that horse stand still and relax. We don't want to have them be afraid of our tools, obviously. And that's crucial to start even on day one 
because we soon need to be getting in close to this horse. We're going to have to be close to him to get a saddle on him. And obviously there's no closer that we're going to be than riding him, right? So this horse needs to be safe to be around. Not just that, but to teach other exercises like yielding the hindquarters and flexing, right? To get there, we have to make this horse safe to be around. We can't have them overreacting to us touching them or to the movement of our training tools. So from that second session onwards, starting with day one here, we're going to always start and end the training sessions with desensitizing. That's extremely important. So let's look at an outline for the first day of training here. The tools that we need are a rope halter, 12 to 14 foot lead rope, training stick and string, and ideally about a 50 foot round pin with good fencing that the horse isn't going to get hung up on. You know, welded pipe or, or good panels, no vinyl, uh, no wire, no electrical tape or electrified rope with steel posts, none of that redneck stuff. But we're going to get the horse in the round pin. And we like to snug the halter up on the horse's face and just unsnap the lead rope because we have a safe enough round pin that halter is not going to get snagged on anything. You can take it off if you want, but it comes in handy later. And we also get a lot of problem horses that are hard to catch. So we'll actually leave that halter on for the time being and either drop the lead rope in a nice coil on the ground or if we're not athletic enough and we're going to be tripping all over it, just set it on the ground outside the round pin gate. Then we'll actually... Go into our round pinning exercise, stand in the center of the round pin with our body position and focus being behind the horse's drive line, which is the imaginary line on the horse's body where the girth would be if he was wearing a saddle. The point about the drive line is that if you apply pressure in front of that, it's going to cause the horse to stop or change direction. Applying pressure behind the drive line will cause the horse to move forward or yield his hindquarters. So when we're driving the horse forward and around the round pin, we want to make sure that our body position stays behind the drive line so we can keep engaging that forward motion. The way I tell people to think about it is imagine you've got a laser attached to your belt buckle. It's pointing and shining straight ahead of you. So when you're working your horse, you want that imaginary laser always to be pointing somewhere on the horse's body behind the drive line. You never want to have your body turned in such a way or positioned in such a way that that laser is pointing up by the horse's front end. It needs to be behind the drive line. You'd be amazed at how many people have a lack of awareness about how their own body position is affecting that horse's ability to move around the round pin and figure out where he's supposed to go. So positioning is critical here. So from the center of the round pin, we're going to hold the training stick in our hand closest to the horse's tail. So your other hand, which we'll call your free hand, is going to be the hand closest to the horse's nose. From the center of the round pin, we're going to send the horse off around the outside of the pin using the cue's point, cluck, and spank. With our free hand, we're going to point off up high in the direction we want the horse to move. And if he doesn't move, we're going to keep pointing and we're going to start to cluck with rhythm. If the horse still doesn't move, we're going to keep pointing, keep clucking with rhythm, and we're going to spank the ground once with the stick and string behind the horse's tail. If the horse still doesn't move, we're going to keep clucking, keep pointing, and we're going to spank the horse on the top of the hindquarters with the stick and string with rhythm. We're going to keep spanking with rhythm until the horse is moving forward at the speed that we want, and we're not going to release the pressure until that happens. Once the horse is going the speed that we want, though, we're going to immediately release the pressure, and we go from actively pointing, clucking, and spanking and driving the horse forward to what we call the neutral position. 
the neutral position is where you're walking forward and around in about a three to four foot circle in the center of the round pin, keeping your body oriented behind that drive line. Of, again, your free hand is relaxed and down at your side, and your stick hand is also relaxed and down at your side. You don't want to keep pointing and keep twirling the stick the entire time and be nagging the horse around. You want to decisively point, cluck, and spank. Once you've driven the horse on at the speed that you want, you go back to the neutral position. And you're only going to point, cluck, and spank again if that horse goes slower than you like. When we first start driving that horse around the round pin, we're going to be smart about how much pressure we put on him in the beginning. Typically, these are young horses or problem horses that we know nothing about. So if we go in there and just go full ape mode, putting a ton of pressure on them with no feel and timing whatsoever, it very well might overload that horse. And especially if he's a more sensitive horse, he might feel so threatened he crashes into the fence and hurts himself, or he might try to jump over the fence even. I've seen that happen in some cases. So typically what we'll do is send them off with just a little bit of energy to get the horse trotting and let them trot a few circles around the round pin. Then we'll pick up the lope once he's got the hang of where to go in the round pin. And the entire point of this exercise is that we're making the horse responsible for maintaining his own speed and direction. Every time he slows down more than we like, we're going to point, cluck, and spank, keep spanking until that horse is moving around at the speed that we want. And in the beginning, we're not going to make the horse lope continuously. Most horses are not capable of that, um, either mentally sometimes or physically. They run out of air too quick because they've never had training before. Or they've never been worked this much. So what we'll typically do is ask them to lope, get back to the neutral position. The horse eventually breaks down to the trot. We'll let him trot for a little bit, you know, maybe a quarter of a circle. And then we'll point, cluck, and spank again and ask him to lope off again. So it becomes this back and forth in the first session of point, cluck, spank, the horse lopes, breaks down, let him jog for a quarter circle, and then pick up the lope again, right? Once we've established direction one way, now we need to start changing directions to the inside. And that means we're going to catch the horse's eye, get his attention, draw his front end off the fence and towards the center of the round pin, have him turn in toward us instead of turning into the fence and then lope off the other way. So to do that, we're going to take a big step out in front of the drive line with our leading leg. That's the leg closest to the horse's nose. It's the same side as your hand that's free, the one, not the one that's holding the stick. You'd be amazed at how many people <laughs> cannot tell right from left or they're doing some kind of a cross-legged football plyometrics drill instead of just taking a single big step in front of the horse's driveline. In this example, if the horse is loping around clockwise, you're going to step out in front of the driveline with your right leg. As you step, you're going to hold your free hand up in front of your face and make a beckoning gesture with your finger, kind of like you're tugging on an imaginary string that's attached to the horse's nose. That's the cue for that horse to look in. What you're doing right here is catching that horse's eye. And if the horse doesn't respond, which they, they're not going to usually until they learn what that means, you immediately start backpedaling. So you took a big step in front of the driveline. The horse didn't pay attention or change their feet. So you immediately start hustling backward. And we, we've told people in the past that they need to walk backward. And the speed was glacial. So what I tell people is run backward, like backpedal like a, a cornerback in football that's 
uh, playing defense and running with a receiver. That's the kind of backpedaling that you need to think about. And it, you know, if you think about doing that, you'll probably get about 50% of the speed that you need to be going. But you're going to back straight up all the way to the fence if necessary and continue holding that finger up, trying to catch that horse's eye and beckon them to look in and come towards you. Oftentimes, the horse will just ignore you and keep going around the pin. So you've got to run backward, you know, still holding that finger up, but run backward all the way to the round pin fence to get in front of him enough to get him to acknowledge you. But you want to run straight back. You don't want to arc around the pin. You want to go straight back from that step that you took initially. As soon as the horse turns in, though, and looks at you, you can change hands with the training stick point with your now free hand in the opposite direction and send the horse off the other way, point, cluck, and spank. As soon as you do so, you then need to hustle back to the center of the round pin. So in an ideal world, you're doing a lot of hustling when you first teach this exercise. You're stepping out in front of that horse. You're backpedaling with a lot of quickness. Um, as soon as the horse turns, you change hands, point, cluck, and spank, drive him off the other way, and then you literally run back to the center of the round pin so that you get out of the horse's way and get back in the position that you need to be to keep driving him around the round pin. That's probably one of the biggest challenges of this exercise for the greener people that we work with is all the running involved. But when you're first teaching a horse, that's going to be a necessary part of it. Now, what usually happens, though, is that horse is not going to turn into you nicely right off the bat. Typically, as soon as you step out in front of the driveline, the horse tries to turn into the fence. And when they do, when they turn into the fence, fully commit to the mistake and try to run the other way, you need to literally run across that round pin at an angle to get in front of the horse, cut them off, point, cluck, and spank, and get them sending back in the original direction. You've really got to hustle and run in those cases because you want to make that horse's choice that he just made which was to turn into the fence you want to make that uncomfortable so to do that you need to get across the pin as quick as possible and put a lot of pressure on that horse as quick as possible when he makes that mistake of turning into the fence and it doesn't matter what way he turns to go back the original direction you just need to get him going that way again set it up again and then ask for the inside turn again and rinse and repeat, as we say, until the horse starts to figure it out. So you establish direction. you got to change a direction to the inside. Now you need to repeat that process until you can get a somewhat consistent change of direction. On the, on the first day, you usually will get maybe three to four turns in a row that are good both ways with the horse before you quit. However, you need to be conscious of that horse's air. We'll talk more about that in a second. Once we've established a consistent uh, change of direction to the inside both ways, we're going to ask that horse to draw into the center. And so we'll do that by stepping out in front again, catching his eye again, and when he turns in, give that horse a total release of pressure by turning and walking away from him. We're going to use the most inviting body language possible to get him to look in and stop and acknowledge that we're not pressuring him anymore and he can be secure in that and just rest there. Typically though, the horse will turn in and start hustling the other way because that's kind of what we programmed them to do up to this point. So you've got to, you know, it might have to take several times where you step out in front of that horse's eye, catch it, he turns in, but then kind of jogs off the other way. So you get back over there, step out again, catch him again, etc. However, if you can't do it, you know, within about a minute there, 
if that horse has no incentive to look in and he's just sprinting around the round pin mindlessly, clearly you haven't done enough work. He's got no incentive to look for a rest and you need to work him more before you invite him to the center of the pin. And as I said earlier, a lot of people get hung up on trying to make their horses join up with them and follow them around the round pin. And that's not as important. In fact, a lot of horses are going to be reluctant to get close to you. And that's not a bad thing at this stage, especially because the majority of horses out there don't respect the personal space of humans in the first place. So if you've been whacking on them a little bit to hustle them around that round pin, and now they're a little bit apprehensive and wary of coming back to the center and getting close to you, that's better than them just mowing you over like most horses will do. But once you're able to get that horse to turn and look in, and usually they'll just stop and face the center. They won't walk all the way up to you. But that's where having the lead rope nearby comes in handy. You can pick it up off the center of the round pin or off the ground outside the fence, walk up to the horse casually, but aware, obviously. You're in close to the horse, which means you need to be safety conscious. But you work your way up to them nice and nonchalantly, snap up the lead rope, and just lead the horse to the center, right? You can play more with it about trying to unlock their hip and spiral out and blah, blah, blah. But usually on the first day, if you've done your job right, that horse is pretty tired and sweaty and, you know, he's craving air in his lungs and he just wants to stand still, right? So we need to figure out a way to make the center with us a very comfortable place to be. And instead of picking at him and trying to unlock his feet in this very first session, just go up there and get him bring him to the center and make him feel comfortable there. So typically we'll just lead the horse over there, or if we don't have the lead rope handy, we'll just kind of lightly pull on the cheek piece of the halter, get the horse to the center. Once he's in the center, we're going to spend several minutes rubbing all over his face soothingly. Typically we'll stand directly in front of the horse with his nose almost on our chest, obviously being safety conscious about it. Um, but if there's a particular side that that horse doesn't like to look at us from, if there's a particular eye that he keeps hiding from us and trying to look at, look at us with only one eye, we'll go and stand slightly on that side. And we've got the halter on his head so we can kind of control him and make sure that we're the ones in control of which eye he sees us out of. A lot of horses, they try to do that. If they can't dominate your personal space and move your feet, they'll assert control by controlling which eye they acknowledge you with. So a lot of times, horses try to avoid showing us their right eye. So when we're resting them in the center, we'll stand more to their right side so that that eye is the one that is acknowledging our presence there and getting comfortable with it. So in the center, we're trying to just massage that horse's face soothingly and let him air up, let him stand completely still, and make him feel good about being in the center and being with us. But if the horse starts to pull away or they leave, all we got to do is just pick up the stick and string, send them back around the round pin and put them back to work again. Clearly, they don't have enough incentive to stay with us in the center. So we'll give them an incentive. Hustle, hustle, hustle. Move your feet forwards, backwards, left and right. Okay, now step out, catch your eye again. Do you want to come to the center and just rest? And typically, it doesn't take more than two or three times before they take us up on that offer. So it's important here that we start with driving the horse away. We want to get his feet moving away from us first before we work on any sort of draw in towards us where we're a lot more vulnerable. So driving the horse away is going to establish, again, just some basic control of his feet with us at a safe distance. 
So after the horse has proven that he's listening and respectful, then when it's our idea, we can invite him back into the center and use some draw to make that happen, rather than it being his idea and him just barging in there dis disrespectfully. What we commonly see is most horse owners doing the exact opposite. They set the tone for the horse's relationship with a lot of draw first. Then when their horse gets disrespectful, pushy, and dominant, they can't even drive the horse away anymore. And when they do try, the horse's attitude just gets uglier and uglier because the horse doesn't respect them. They have no control of the horse's feet. So the point of this round pinning, especially session one, day one, is to set the tone of... I control your feet, but I'll still invite you in if you're respectful. So once we've done that, now it's time to start desensitizing the horse. We want the horse to respect us, but not fear the tools that we're using. We start by flicking the lead rope over the horse's withers and back with rhythm while standing at a 45 degree angle to the horse's shoulder and keeping the lead rope short, holding it about a foot and a half from the snap and holding our rope hand up toward the horse's eye. That way we've got a little defense mechanism there and we can bump that horse's head away if he tries to walk over the top of us or change sides on us as many horses will try to do. But we'll flick that rope with rhythm over the withers and back, hindquarters, neck, back legs, front legs in that order. Typically on this session, we'll just do the withers and back first and maybe the hindquarters, right? But we start by flicking about three feet of rope, just nice and soft with nice rhythm over the horse's back. We'll continue with rhythm until the horse stops moving their feet and shows a sign of relaxing, which is licking and chewing, cocking a hind leg, taking a deep breath, blinking their eyes, or just standing perfectly still, not moving an inch for 15 seconds. And at any point, if we're throwing that lead rope over their back with rhythm, most horses will get worried about it. You know, we, even if they're not sensitive horses, we just had a 20 minute session where we were pointing, clucking and spanking and putting a lot of pressure on them to move around the round pin. So a lot of horses will be in a mindset of, they see us moving anything with our arms, that means they're gonna get spanked. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna get spanked, but we have to show them that, right? So we're going to continue flicking that lead rope with rhythm and having as nonchalant body language, as passive body language as possible. And if they move around, if the horse moves around, we do our best to keep flicking that rope with rhythm with the same level of energy that we started with and stay in position at that 45 degree angle to their shoulder. We try to move with the horse, maintain that rhythm, don't increase the pressure, but don't release it either the horse stands still and relaxes. And then as the horse gets quieter about that, we start letting out more and more length of lead rope and we start working our way further back to their hindquarters and then up to their neck and then around their back legs. And we do that on both sides, obviously. We build up, you know, find a starting point, but then build up to where we're, we're throwing the entire lead rope, pitching the entire thing and letting go of it as it sails over their back and then drawing it back across their back, flicking it out to the side, reloading it, and then pitching it over their body again. So we go from just flicking a little three-foot length of it to flicking about 12 feet over their back in one big exaggerated motion. We, we make things more exaggerated as we get the horse comfortable with it, but we don't start there. We find a starting point that's a lot more subtle. 
And we follow that same model with the stick and string. We start just flicking it over their back with rhythm. Once we've got the horse confident with the string touching their body, we'll actually start spanking the ground next to the horse with rhythm and desensitize them to that. So a recap of that first session is we did our round pinning exercise for 20 minutes, more or less. Then we desensitized to the lead rope, stick and string. We let the horse rest, usually for a half an hour, 45 minutes, or sometimes we'll just leave them in the round pin, um, go do some other ranch chores or whatever, come back when the horse is aired up and fresh again and has their second wind, we'll round pin them again uh, after we desensitize though. So we'll walk in the round pin, desensitize, review that, then unsnap the lead rope, do our round pinning catch them again, desensitize again, and then quit for that first day. By the end of day one, if we've done our job right, we've set the tone of that relationship going forward. We've shifted that horse out of his comfort zone. We've gotten his respect. We certainly got his attention. And we've established concepts that we're going to start building on in the days ahead. My final point on this, and the reason why we, you know, day one is, is pretty basic. But the reason we went into it with such detail is a lot of people do not take this as seriously as they need to be, especially with young horses, young colts that are impressionable. You need to come in there and set the tone in a decisive way from day one. A lot of people treat this as kind of, oh, I'm dinking around and, you know, tinkering and playing with my horse and just seeing how this colt handles things. No, you need to have a program. You, you're, it's like you're educating a kid who's a sponge for all things good and bad. And the best defense against him picking up bad habits and becoming a delinquent is to f instill him with good habits and good things to occupy his focus and attention. And that's what we got to do on day one. So we take that pretty seriously and we get a lot done and it really sets the tone for day two. All right, so moving into the advanced segment here. So we're gonna talk about dry work on a green cow horse. And we're gonna go over some tips and preparations that we do prior to beginning flag work. So in our performance horse program, we talk a lot about getting a horse mentally soft or accepting being trained on. If you're trying to teach any advanced maneuver or train for any specialized event, this is beyond crucial. This is what we mean by a truly broke horse. Most horses out there are not truly broke. By that I mean they're still technically fighting or resisting the rider's hands or legs at some level. They're doing the exercises or going through the motions in many cases, but they're not relaxed about it. They're uncomfortable. And in fact, the horse is more concerned with the pressure being put on him and the bind that he's being put in than with the job in front of him. Yeah, and in the cow horse world, that's as good as a death sentence. Because a horse that isn't confident about his job and not watching the cow because he's so preoccupied with being worried about or frustrated what the rider is doing, you know, that that's just, it's not going to work. We need that horse to be focused on his job and not worried about what we're doing in the saddle. And the entire point of dry work and flag work is to eventually translate that muscle memory and that body positioning to the cow. There's an end goal and purpose in mind. We need to be able to manipulate and control that horse's body, put him in certain positions, pull on him, have our feet in him, and having him accept that pressure and accept that control. But if the horse isn't relaxed enough and they're not broke enough to understand what we're trying to do, we're not going to get very far because everything is going to turn into a fight. So I want to talk about the bare minimum things we need to have on any horse 
before we even approach the flag itself. And a couple of them are what we call advanced flexing and advanced bending. Advanced flexing is we can flex that horse's head and neck around both laterally and vertically at the standstill and transition between the two with no resistance. We're able to take that horse's face down and around, down and around both ways, put that horse's head where we want with no resistance. And we can also bend that horse forward and around in a circle. They're following their nose forward and around. Uh, we're softening that rib cage around our inside leg. At the same time, we're softening their nose down and around toward our inside toe. And we also need to be able to drive that horse up into his face, have him bent around, but with vertical flexion as well. Be able to drive him up into the bridle, shape him there, get him collected. The horse also needs to stop soft and relaxed off of a draw, not just on the word whoa or on our seat position. That horse needs to willingly stop off a draw on the reins and back up willingly. We also need to have a good side pass on a horse. We need some rib cage control and we need hindquarter control as well as shoulder control. We need to at least be able to counterbend that horse a little bit at the walk and the jog and push that shoulder off with our inside leg, make sure that he accepts our legs and hands, not resistant about that. But above all, we need this horse to be following his nose. We can pick up that inside rein, turn him, bring his shoulders through, it's an exercise that I call yield the four quarters under saddle. That's how it starts. But the basics is I can pick up that horse, bring his nose through, his shoulders come through, and the rest of his body follows, and that is controlled. So when we look at dry work in preparation for the flag, the entire point of it is to start simulating how that horse needs to travel and position himself and turn before we ever go to the flag. And the, the key points of that are Travel in a straight line, and the horse stays between your legs, and he stays relaxed. The horse needs to stop balanced, and big point here, he needs to be secure in that stop. He's not moving. He's not fidgeting around. He's not leaning. His hips aren't shooting off the other way, right? He's able to stop and be secure and relaxed about that. Then we need the horse to set up and turn, bring his front end through, but have his nose leading the way, and travel straight across the arena again. So in this dry work exercise, we're going to jog across the pen on a straight line. Use your legs to drive that horse up into his face, making sure his body is straight underneath you. You're going to release your feet and stop. I want you to hesitate and allow the horse to stand there, flat-footed, not fidgeting around, nervous, leaning, jumping away, hip, you know, make sure the hip stays in line. We don't want any of that happening. So you need to focus on keeping that horse straight underneath you. Yeah, it's a balance between keeping your legs wrapped around the horse enough to secure him and kind of keep his body in place um, without going overboard. You don't want to have absolutely no leg pressure and give the horse no help, but you don't completely manufacture it either. You're trying to allow that horse to adopt the mode that, or the mold rather, that you're after. And if his body gets out of position anywhere, your hands and legs are there to bring him back in a line and correct him a little bit. But above all, you know, when you're traveling across the pen, setting up for that stop, you ask the horse to stop, you need to be feeling what the body's doing and you need to be aware of what's happening. You know, it's kind of like in the movie Talladega Nights when Ricky Bobby's dad is like, you don't drive with your eyes, you got to feel the road, right? It's kind of what we're doing here, except we don't want to go off the highway and crash into a house. We're trying to stay straight and balanced. 
So in the beginning, we'll drive the horse up to the stop. What I mean by that is we've got our legs in him a little bit. We're bridling him up, driving him up to his face. And then we get up and we stop by releasing our feet as well as using our hands, obviously. So we come up to a complete stop. We're going to stand there. And often what I'll do is just stand there and flex side to side and just work on, you know, bending him left and right, bridling him up a little bit at the standstill. And once that softness checks out, sometimes I'll just let him stand there and have his face for a few seconds to where I make sure that that horse is completely relaxed and secure in that stop. And when I'm ready to turn from the standstill, I'm going to draw that horse's nose around to about a 90 degree angle with my inside rein. I'm always going to start the turn with the nose first. I'm only going to use direct rein when I initially pick up because that puts the rest of the horse's body in a better position to make a fluid turn. But once I've initiated the turn, I can bring in a little outside rein to help the horse follow through. But my point in that is when you're making those turns, don't get carried away with dragging the outside rein across their neck. You can overdo that. You get to a point where you're pulling on the outside rein so much, you're either getting in their way of making a nice fluid turn and following their nose, or in some cases, you're blocking that shoulder and hiding the fact that his shoulders aren't coming through like they need to be, and he's not really following his nose. He's leaking out everywhere, right? So you want to make yourself a little bit vulnerable when you initiate that turn by just picking up with the inside rein and having that horse follow his nose, and then your outside leg and outside rein help the horse follow through. So you don't want that horse's body to be bulging out. You don't want his hindquarters to be flailing around to the outside. You don't want his shoulders to rush through and get stiff. Lead, you know, have the horse leading that turn with his shoulders instead of his nose. And that difference, that's a very important point there. Because the difference between a horse leading the turn with his shoulder instead of following his nose, from an outside observer, the difference might not be very apparent. But you can feel those things as a rider. And as a rider, you know, if the horse's body feels out of position in those moments, you need to be making what I call active corrections, using your legs and hands in the moment to put that horse back into position and help him find that position that his body needs to be in, right? Put enough pressure on him, use your legs, use your hands, motivate him, but you're doing so to kind of provide a support system and help him find that mold. You're not blowing his confidence by really kicking on him or getting after him. Turn nose first, follow through, travel across the arena, stop, and stand still. So we're going to rinse and repeat in these early stages. You want to practice standing still while flexing and bringing the horse's nose all the way around. Then you're going to release, bring it around to the other side, release, all while standing patiently. This helps teach a young horse focus. They'll be in a habit of stopping balanced, while at the same time, they'll look up and in at that cow. They can get their gaze in focus and watch the cow while their feet stay disciplined. A good analogy for that would be like a defensive back in football. Their gaze is up. They see where the quarterback is. They're watching the play develop in front of them. But at the same time, they stay disciplined with their feet. They stay in an athletic position. They don't sell out and overcommit to something that the quarterback does, like a pump fake or a fake handoff or something like that. They stay disciplined and they maintain their zone and maintain an athletic position and balance. And that's what we're after here. So the active corrections and the extra help and security we provide a young horse with our legs and hands is a similar concept to how we will help a horse that's green in the rain work. 
when we first start working on our rundowns, we'll maintain contact with that colt's face and keep our legs in them, enough to secure them. We want to keep them between our hands and our legs. This gives the young horse confidence, and it's going to help teach him to run straight and stay straight. In that scenario, with your hands and your legs, you're, you're like training wheels on a bicycle for that horse. They're there to provide extra security and help that horse keep his balance. Over time, and especially as his confidence grows and his experience gets more and more, you can start to take those training wheels off. That's really important to mention because we've gotten some pushback in the past from other trainers when we talk about how we teach rundowns to young horses. Um, other trainers who say that we ought to leave that young horse's face completely alone when we start introducing the rundown. And I, I know why they say that. It's because they're worried about getting in that horse's way and creating other problems, right? And there's definitely some merit to that. But we feel like that there can be a balance where we're not manufacturing everything, getting in the horse's way, but we're also not totally hanging that young horse out to dry with no support system either. So thinking back about our dry work here, once we're satisfied with how that horse's body is moving, traveling across the arena straight, they stop balance, they stand still, they'll let us bring their nose through and turn nose first, follow through nice and soft and move off again. Now, once we're happy with that, we can take those fundamentals and start applying it to a moving target, which is the flag. So as you become a more advanced rider, you're going to run into areas like this where a deep understanding of form and function or how a horse's body works, the form we want them to adopt to be efficient in their job and how that translates to the task at hand is going to come in in a very crucial way. We'll talk more about that in the next episode when we introduce the horse to the flag itself and start giving him a target to follow. I wanted to wrap up this episode um, with kind of a little theory segment or, or something to lick and chew on uh, mentally, horse, you know, horsemanship psychology-wise. And I thought a good one to start with because this is something that came up back when we started Lundahl Performance. We were even debating whether or not to call it Lundahl Performance Horses. And we were debating, you know, one of the reasons we originally named our podcast, the Project Horse Podcast, was because we wanted to hopefully communicate to people that while we have a performance horse flavor to our business, um, we, we ride and train performance horses, we're very much into that. But we, we do other things, right? We serve all levels of horse owners. We didn't want people to feel intimidated by the performance horse moniker. Um, and that's something that we've run into time and time again, right? Another thing, I, you know, talking to some of the non-pro riders that I know um, and have worked with, a common theme that's come up over the last couple of years is just a bit of intimidation, I think, um, about going to horse shows or what I would call high-performance environments, right? Um, you're around other people that are super experienced, um, they've got amazing horses. You're very much outside of your comfort zone. And for some people I've talked to, even going to a premier event, like say a, a premier derby or futurity, just being there in that environment itself is intimidating for some people. And I want to talk a little bit about that because one of the things that I really believe in to grow as a person is 
setting yourself into situations where you have on-purpose exposure to a high-performance environment, whether you feel like you belong there in the moment or not, you're forcing yourself outside of your comfort zone into what you consider an intimidating environment. The reason you do that is because it gives you it gives yourself a chance to adapt to the attitudes and the behaviors of the high-performance people in those environments and makes you as a person better. That success is almost contagious in a way. And an example of that would be going to a premier horse show or, or a derby or futurity event, but not just going as a spectator to eat popcorn and hot dogs. Like actually go down to the warm-up pens, watch the guys, walk through the barns, talk to trainers and assistants who are available. Immerse yourself in that environment, you know. I, I work with a lot of people who pay lip service to the idea that they want to show horses or that, you know, they want to advance themselves as a rider. But in these high performance environments, they feel almost intimidated and clam up. And my response to that is embrace it, go out there, get exposure to it, become comfortable in this newer, more high level environment, right? It's just something that takes time and it takes purposeful reaching out to people there. Another example would be going to a high-end tax store, you know, browsing the saddles, handmade chaps, hats that you can't afford, right? Or going to watch the youth in the primetime non-pro divisions. And one of the reasons I say that is because a lot of people, they see these young kids or the primetime non-pros that are older, they see these people competing and riding at a high level, and it makes them feel intimidated, like, oh, man. Look at what he's doing. I, I could never do that, you know. And if that's your mentality, you need to consciously focus on changing that. Watching a young kid or, or a primetime non-pro do well should be motivating to you. It, it should be a sense of, well, you know, man, they're, they're doing this. They're really successful. They're kicking ass. Let me throw my head in the ring. I, I can try that, you know. But for many people, it's the opposite. It's like, oh, I could never do that, you know. And that's a mentality that I've seen with a lot of people that needs to change. We talk a lot about training tactics for people who are evolving out of the clinic horsemanship stuff and getting into more specialized, more advanced things. They're becoming more ambitious. They want to uh, develop themselves as a horseman and as a rider. This is one of the ways to do that. you got to focus on your mentality. And a good example of this, there is a now, this is completely outside the horse industry, but it's a good example of how low self-esteem too many people are. There was a, a businessman who's a, a billionaire. I think he made his fortune in, I think, the oil industry. Um, anyway, he was hosting an exclusive event where he charges over $20,000 per person to attend. You go live with this guy, learn from him, business stuff, etc. So he offered a free seat in that seminar to anyone who did the following things. They had to go to a luxury car dealership like Ferrari, Lamborghini, Rolls Royce. They had to sit in one of the cars and they had to take a selfie in the car. He called it the smell the leather challenge. The idea being that you go to these places that you can't afford, that are outside of your comfort zone, that are outside of your standard of living, and you, you accommodate yourself to that, to that new environment, right? They also had to go to an open house of a multi-million dollar home and, and photograph themselves there. And they had to photograph themselves browsing an item in a store that they couldn't afford, like go to an actual Louis Vuitton or Chanel outlet and take a photo of yourself browsing through that. 
And so he made that offer for a free seminar seat. He put it out there in an email to his over 50,000 person email list. Out of over 50,000 people, how many people do you think took that challenge? Eight. Eight people entered the contest. Eight out of 50,000. So that smell the leather challenge is a great, a great example of something I think is a problem for many horse owners, especially the ones that are at a certain level, aspiring to get better, looking for direction, looking for help, right? If you're feeling intimidated about the prospect of stepping to that higher level, instead of excited and looking forward to it, you need to change your mental habits. Yes, it definitely comes down to mindset, but also just keep in mind, you know, say, say you're at that premier horse show, you know, something that in the back of your mind, even if you've kind of let yourself even mentally go there of, you know, what that would be like to show or, you know, to uh, participate in that event and it just immediately intimidates you, go to that event. Remember that the people that are there, they're just that. They're people just like you, just like me. Everybody has a starting point. And I would say as a general rule, you'll probably be surprised that talking to them once you kind of get talking to them and relax a little bit, it's not going to be half as bad as you thought. But yeah, expose yourself. Don't be afraid to try things, to ask questions. And you'll probably be surprised about how well received you are versus how you thought you would be. One of the things I've noticed with super successful people um, in the horse industry and other industries is there's a certain percentage of the people that are super successful that are extremely bad negative people, right? But those people are usually a very distinct minority. Most of the people at the top, one of their qualities really, and one of the reasons that makes them so successful is, it, is because they're good people. They're amicable. They are open to talking about what they do. They're friendly. They're not going to look down on you, right? I talk to so many people that are intimidated about the horse show environment. Um, one of the things that's going on in the industry right now that we're seeing more and more of, especially on social media, is debate about the death, for example, of the non-pro reigning, although it's, I guess, debatable if, if that's actually dying or if it's just being framed that way by certain people with agendas. But regardless, there's a lot of angst over how do we grow the sport and make it less intimidating to entry-level people um, and this and that. And I think a lot of people outside of that segment of the industry that just ride horses recreationally, um, you know, that, that don't have, they've never been in those environments, right? But they look at it from an outside perspective and they feel intimidated. They see it as snooty. They see it as elitist. You know, if those people just took the time to go to these environments and not just judge it from an outside perspective, but actually immerse themselves in it, I think they would see a lot of the positives. The one failure, I think, out there is on the part of the trainers who are coaching non-pros and beginning riders and getting them into riding, getting them into these sports, is that I think the trainers themselves shoot the industry more in the foot than the non-pros that are apprehensive about stepping into that role. And I really believe it's important to have good mentors by your side that can provide guidance. But it's also equally important to have some self-esteem and some self-confidence and to recognize that this is not something that's extremely unattainable. 
You know, this, this is not like for the average person going to a basketball game and watching LeBron James compete and thinking, wow, you know, I, I have nowhere near that talent, right? That's what people are honestly thinking, I think, a lot of times when they go to these horse events. And it's just not the case. Showing horses, competing with horses, having fun with horses is a lot more of an achievable goal than playing in the NBA. You don't need to be a great athlete. You're not at a disadvantage if you're a woman or man or old or young or what have you. It's open to everybody. But that lack of mentoring, I think, is a problem. So two things to think about. Number one, to kind of lick and chew on my smell the leather challenge idea. If there's any New Year's resolutions that you could keep, you know, that's a pretty attainable one is take a stab at these high performance environments. Go to these places that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable or is a little bit outside of your comfort zone and immerse yourself in it. I think you'll be surprised at what you find. The other thing to think about is when it comes to mentorship, there's a reason that I've created my Horseman's Academy program is to give people who are looking for some direction and structure and an actual roadmap to their goals and somebody that's going to have skin in the game and be invested in their goals and not just turn them loose with no plan to follow. That's why I created the Academy is to provide that and also try to assemble a community of horse people around me that are of a different mindset, not an elitist, better than you mindset, but a thinking horseman community, people that are more ambitious. They're dedicated to problem solving with their horses, figuring out a way forward and getting to that next level and being productive and having fun with their horses. Just having more sophisticated conversations in general about horse training and horse psychology. If that interests you, you can check out the Horseman's Academy as well as the other things that we're doing over on lundallperformance.com academy. If you have questions for the podcast, you know what to do. Go to Facebook, Go to Lundahl Performance, send us a message, include your question with three possible answers. For this first episode, we picked a Q&A question that several people had asked us in the past and we felt was important to address. But if, if you want us to specifically address something that you personally are going through right now with your horse, that's the format to follow. Message us your question, include three possible hypothetical answers to your own question. We'll read them on the air and we'll follow up with you directly when your episode goes live. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.